Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I'm John Negroni. I'm the box office columnist for Adam Tickets, head writer of Cinemaholics.com, and I write books once in a while. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. You know him, you love him, but sometimes you might not always see him because it's a podcast. It's Will Ashton. Hello, hello. Will, we have a special guest this week. Did you know this? That we do. Yes, and I do. I'm excited to welcome him to the show because it's been so long, maybe even like a week or two since he was on the show. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'm, yeah, I was going to say, what if we just didn't introduce him until like 30 minutes into the movie? Right. <laughs> or into the podcast. The whole time in the yeah, corner. Right. You're right. Yeah. So I'm not going to introduce him. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, oh, okay. including our full archive <laughs> on Cinemaholics.com. Write into the show anytime by emailing us, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. Did you hear something, Will? You can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. And don't forget to rate this podcast. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash cinemaholics. And you can find an easier way to rate our podcast and give us five stars because we love your support and you all are so kind. And we hope we are doing everything we can to deserve your continued listenership well it's just you and me this week and i guess so <laughs> yeah i'm excited about it uh we just where's a... that breath of air coming from though <laughs> it's it is and a little cold though. have a dent <laughs> <laughs> it's not the biggest dent because whoever it is must be working out lately losing weight oh, nice. hopefully all these compliments won't get the breath of air to be even fiercer but anyway we have a couple of off topics uh it's, we have a couple of things to announce of course uh, we we have to apologize. Did here the whole time? <laughs> did you hear something? Will? I did. Is this that, like uh... an invisible man pun, or is that? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I mean, it's a decent one. It's like an eight out of ten. I'll give I, you that. I must have some audio playing from my phone or something because it is hooked up to. I don't know. Will. John, I gotta admit, I think you're not actually hearing things. I think you're going a little cuckoo. Are you gaslighting me, Will Ashton? <laughs> Are Am you I? trying to tell me? Okay. All right. Portrait of a Lady on Fire was a special bonus <laughs> episode we did this past Friday. Lots of fun. We did that with Julia Tady and Emily Kubin-Kanek. Finally, I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Uh, so much fun. Will and I got to talk to them about the movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We have to apologize because we did not have a an official episode last week. We we missed our timing. and Instead, we put out two bonus episodes Hopefully that that curbed your appetites, listeners, and you were able to get a lot out of that because we also put out our latest extra milestone with, of course, Sam Nolan. Sam and I sat down. We got a little serious. We talked about Young Frankenstein, the classic Mel Brooks movie. And Will, I have to confess something to you. What's that? It's something that I, I don't want a lot of people to know. Like I would never, for example, you know, like our friend Corey Woodruff? Yep. I would never tell yeah. him this. Like, I would lose it. Like, I would get so embarrassed if he found out that right. I did not really like Young Frankenstein that much. Sure. Because, like, it's Corey. Like, I want him to respect me and think I'm cool. He would never, ever, ever think of you any differently. But Thank you, you know. Will. You sound kind of... Sure. Are you all right, Will? You sound kind of different. Yeah. I got a little bit of a cough in my throat. I don't have, I hope I don't have any. Oh, uh, not a good time to have a cough. Whoa, Will, calm down. You're talking too much. It's like I can't parse yeah. out what you're saying, but okay. Fair enough. But yeah, so we have a few reviews to get to this week. We're going to be talking about The Invisible Man, very relevant movie, uh, the latest film from Lee Winnell. And we'll also be talking about a Sean the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. So excited to get to that. Wendy, 
which is the latest from Ben Zeitlin, and The Call of the Wild, which was the movie we would have reviewed last week, and we are, we are pushing it to this episode, so I hope you all get a lot out of that. And then we'll, of course, finish the show with what to watch next week, and there's a couple of interesting things on that docket, but let's get into it, Will Ashton. Our first review is The Invisible Man, and... Um, <laughs> What's so funny? Do I just need to like shoot my hand up from the ground or did I? <laughs> I don't understand what you're talking about, Will. And you still like your cough is really striking me. Yeah, I, I hope I don't I don't have any uh serious illnesses right now. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Uh so The Invisible Man, if I can just get to it, I suppose, was written and directed by Lee Winnell. Last time we got to talk about one of his films was Upgrade which wasn't his directorial yeah. debut, but no. it, it was kind of like his first film with Blumhouse. It was kind of like outside of the sod and insidious franchise. Is that fair to say? Wasn't it insidious Blumhouse? Yeah, it was. What I'm saying is upgrade was more outside of like those fran those established franchises. Sure. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Like so, cause his, his first movie was insidious chapter three. So upgrade felt mm. more of like, that's his thing. You know, and he, yeah. he's worked with James Wan, who he considers publicly a good friend. And I remember mm -hmm. being very satisfied with Upgrade as like a sci-fi action, almost almost horror movie, or at least like some kind of like striking uh, subject matter in Upgrade that was kind of not frightening, I guess. I don't know. How would you describe Upgrade at this point? Been a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, a Carpenter riff in some respects, but I thought it was really effective as like a low budget sure. sci-fi horror, body horror uh, film. Definitely really made great use of its limited budget as far as like making it seem like it was like right. three or four times whatever it costs. And I could say the same thing about Invisible Man as well. But um, assuming I don't actually know the budget is for Invisible Man, but I'm assuming it's fairly low. I, I have house. the budget right here. Seven million dollars. So this is a yeah, that's, highly yeah. profitable movie. My only question mm -hmm. is, like, do you think I hate to bring him up again, but our friend Corey, I wish he was sure. here. But uh, do you think yeah, you liked Upgrade? What a shame. You know, I know Corey pretty well. And knowing him, I definitely think that he would tell you if he were here on this podcast to represent himself, that he found it to be a very enjoyable experience, that he thinks that Logan Marshall Green has been waiting for a vehicle like this to show off some of his yeah. more unique talents, where he's not just the other Tom Hardy. But I think that was such an interesting uh, second feature for Leigh Whannell, and it really was just such a fun sci-fi riff that also it kind of it was gory it was very edgy but it also had some horror tones to it that kind of helped mark a lot of like david cronenberg and uh carpenter james james carpenter um john carpenter dry carpenter yeah. but um yeah it just reminds me of kind of a modern update of that format where it is very genre steeped but it does have some thrills and uh, you know it was kind of those movies like you just can't not pay attention to this guy and obviously his new film even confirms that more thanks will ashton that was really sure. good analysis like that was probably some of your best flow <laughs> there's just like so many details and like just your your wordsmithing is i'm actually like really taken aback great stuff and uh so glad that you're you're at the top Appreciate of your game this week because this is a movie oh, at you. the top of its game True. I think it's fair to say. So the invisible man is kind of an established movie character. There've been a bunch of invisible man movies. There was a novel called the invisible man by HG Wells, which uh, I don't think really comes up in the credits for this new film, which explores sort of a different facet for the character. 
Well, it might be public access by now, right? Because it was like 18. Well, something. yeah, it wouldn't. See, here's the thing. It's universal. So they they wouldn't need to. Like, legally, they wouldn't have to be like, yeah, we got to credit H.G. Wells. It would be more of like a nod. It would be like we respect right, like a courtesy. where it comes from. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Hollywood's all about favors. And this sure. latest movie is certainly a departure from established Invisible Man movies. We could talk for a while about that legacy, but let's hopefully weave it into the film itself. I was going to say, the last one I think was, I don't know if this was technically an Invisible Man adaptation, but Hollow Man, the uh, Paul Verhoeven yeah. film from like 2000, I think, or, or, or was it, was that the 90s? I forget. Uh, I think it was early 2000s. 2000, yeah. I remember yeah. seeing the posters for that when I was a kid. It was like kind of eerie. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that film uh, ultimately unsuccessful, but uh, certainly a, a kindred cousin of this movie in the sense of taking the Invisible Man story and making it more of a horror film and sort of a quirky sci-fi treatise on how uh, amazing powers can corrupt science or people of science, which uh, is what I respect a lot about that original universal film we we can't forget of course the invisible man does appear in the league of extraordinary gentlemen and that's uh, true to to great aplomb i certainly would say but let's talk about this new movie starring elizabeth moss she is our 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 real lead in this movie we we start with this excellent opening scene where elizabeth moss is this young woman who is trapped in a violent controlling marriage with a very wealthy scientist in the field of optics named Adrian, who in this movie is played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. And what a stunning opening scene that even before any of the, the titular invisibility even comes into effect, we really get a sense that this man she's in a marriage with is so abusive, she finds herself absolutely paranoid, trying not to get caught escaping his grasp in their luxurious Marin County seaside home. I have to shout this out, Will, and whoever is in the corner over there. Uh, sure. This is another <laughs> another film taking place in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm just happy about that. I, you know, Is Blumhouse based in San Fran? Uh, no, for, and well, okay. Um, no one says San Fran. And if you ever say San Fran again, I'm like, bringing it I'm back. saying it right now. No, no. Well, <laughs> we have a lot of fun on cinema. It's sure. a place where I hope you feel like you can just hang out, be yourself. Sure. You don't say San Fran ever. You don't tell me what to do. John, the groany. Um, <laughs> no, I don't actually, I don't feel comfortable saying San Fran. So I'll take, I'll heed your advice this time. I hate when my friends argue about ways yeah. to call a city. It tears me apart. So mm-hmm. saith the lump in the corner. Did you hear something, Will? I was uh, going to say, is that is that in my head or am I hearing things? Sounds like you're just talking a lot. It's, it's special guest Corey Woodruff. Oh, He's hey. Here. It's All Corey right. Woodruff, the special guest on this week's episode of Cinema. I think, I think we dragged this bit out. I apologize, Corey. <laughs> uh, you're fine. I was honestly. I, I said that as a. I I threw that out as a one-liner gag, and John <laughs> just took that ball and ran with it. So For like almost twenty minutes. <laughs> it's been twenty minutes. Uh, maybe at like, least fifteen. It's been like ten minutes, and I yeah, don't I understand this bit you're doing well, where you're t- pretending sure. to be two people. Oh man, I am I getting gaslit right on. now? I wasn't privy to it. <laughs> oh man. All right. Uh, how about this, Will? I will. I will humor you. Sure. Um, I'm sure Corey's in the room with you right now, and I want you to feel safe. 
And you can say San Fran if you want, and you can pretend to be special guest Corey Woodruff from Nashville, Tennessee, our friend and colleague, if if that's what makes you comfortable. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) This is like becoming a Charlie Kaufman meta-esque podcast. So I think I'm talking to Corey, right? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Corey quotes. Corey, what what else is happening in Invisible Man? What, without spoiling, of course, and what's what's our general synopsis of this movie, and uh, the way that it comes about? Well, I think it is a very fascinating spin on this story because I like that, like we all kind of remember the Invisible Man in a very generic sense of what the character is, and the fact that you know it's an invisible man. You can do like a little rim shot there, like it's not not that hard to figure out, but. It's just such a unique twist on the story. Obviously, Elizabeth Moss' character is in an abusive relationship and in a marriage where she is hyperly controlled, and she decides to take it upon herself to leave. And her leaving sets apart a chain of motions to where her abusive spouse ends up committing suicide. And um, she inherits a lot of money from it, and it's a very strange situation, but... As we learn in the trailer, it becomes apparent that he may not be gone after all, Um, that there might be the invisible man might be him still haunting her some way from beyond the veil. And it's her trying to convince people that she's being haunted by her for them deceased spouse. And for them, it seems like she's having a psychotic break down and they're trying to assure her that she's fine that she's okay and there is this idea of gaslighting that comes into play and kind of the using that as a theme to the story when in reality you know she's not nearly as you know too far gone as at all people think that there actually is a threat there we won't talk about how that threat happens i don't think the trailer really delves into that too much but no the trailer does not give that much away which is surprising and refreshing. Yeah it is very much so because the, the first time I watched the trailer it was kind of like there is a yeah. lot being discussed here. I was very concerned but yes it was a bit of a few red herrings which I appreciate. Very mm-hmm. much. So. But yeah it's just a very good um it's a very good hor- it's a, I definitely I don't like the crowd of people who say this new era of like Blumhouse social horror is like not horror elevator horror that's what i call it elevator yeah and like i still think this movie is incredibly creepy like i think that it definitely adheres a lot to a lot of classic genre tropes for horror film like i think that straight cut horror that's what i say yeah very much so like it's it's definitely a prime cut like you're not dealing with like a saw movie necessarily but like you know it is it is very it's it is it is elevated horror but i still think it's an incredibly creepy film um it reminded me a lot of tin cloverfield lane that was which is a phenomenal film i think that movie is like a borderline masterpiece but it definitely reminded me of kind of that singular journey where a strong female character gets thrusted into this just bizarre situation and she has to kind of rely on her wits and her strength to be able to navigate it in the face of a quote-unquote monster um that is very unconditional very uh unconditional uh very untraditional for what we're used to seeing yes she has unconditional love with her abusive husband says Corey woodruff or whoever he says he is i uh i i thought of hitchcock a lot with uh this kind of horror or like sort of an evolved form of hitchcock if he made a film in the modern day i think this film would be very similar to it and i, I have mm. to say Corey, very astute analysis I, I again you're just like really killing it this week 
and oh, i'm just really impressed will I, Corey, and um uh, yeah generally speaking though i guess i'm switching to will this t- yeah will ashton what, what did you think yeah. of the invisible man there he is and uh yeah do, do you think this lives up to what uh cory would call elevator horror um yeah i mean i definitely liked it i don't know if i'm quite as positive on it but by no means am I negative on the film at all. I mean, I definitely think what it does well, it really does well. And I think a lot of that becomes a credit to both Lee Winnell as a filmmaker uh, who is, I think, continuing to establish himself uh, with a sense of technical prowess in a way that I wasn't really anticipating even after Upgrade and also Elizabeth Moss's performance, which, I mean, as clever as I think the concept is and as much as I like the approach of this film, I think the movie lives or dies with her performance especially given that she's, you know, acting or interacting with someone who's literally uh, just, you know, uh, an invisible co-star. And so a lot of it rides on her shoulders and we've seen her do a lot of tremendous performances. But this one, I think uh, it really just showcases how much of a star she is and how much of a dramatic talent she is and how much I wish that someone would cast her in a yes. good lighthearted rom-com uh-huh give her put her uh, in like the, the next disney plus christmas movie with anna kendrick please or something i mean i think she's something, done comedy anything. before i mean i know she did the square which isn't a like traditional comedy she but... did uh the one the one i love which isn't quite right. as well that's not even that's not a comedy her, either <laughs> well it's not a comedy but it's definitely something different it's more of like a duplass like indie sort of thing so it's at least yeah but i'm talking her. like yeah, but I'm talking like straight comedy, like even something that's like satirical. The only thing I can sure. really think of is the square. She is so funny in Mad Men. So it, it sure. is kind of bonkers. To but that's me. still considered a drama, right? Like it I'm is, thinking, is but there, Mad yeah. Men is more than the sum of its parts. It's a lot sure. of things and everything. I I'm think, not saying it's any one thing, but I'm just saying that. Yeah. Has she done just like like a Judd Apatow romp? I don't know. I, not that I've seen. Uh, I, I guess we could ask. Well, she's going to be in uh, the Wes Anderson thing. So I guess that'll be your chance. That's right. She's going to be so. in uh, the French Dispatch. So mm-hmm. that's going to be coming out not too far from now. Yeah. So we sort of mentioned earlier that this movie has very low budget of $7 million. It's making money, $49.2 million at the box office as of this recording, which is once again, Blumhouse proving that whenever they just take these big swings where they sort of reset their franchises or they, they take risks with smaller movies, sometimes it, it spirals into such, into such success. It almost finances yeah. the other riskier films they do, which I always really appreciate. I love Isn't their that like model. a crazy concept. Like you don't <laughs> have to spend $185 million sure. on, a, yeah. on a tentpool project. Mm-hmm. It's it's like we've reverted back to the 50s and 60s right. of golden era Hollywood, which was so behind in the times they felt like they had to do Cleopatra and Ben-Hur in order to finance, in order to get people to stop watching TV. We're facing the same mm-hmm. situation where people are like, well, the only way to get people to the movies to not watch something that's on Netflix is to do these big $200 million movies because people read the Hollywood Reporter, right? And that's clearly not the case. Time's a flat circle. <laughs> That's right. So that said, uh, Corey Woodruff, are you upset and sad that this movie is, does not star Johnny Depp and is a continuation of the dark universe that Universal tried to do with Tom Cruise in 2018's The Mummy or 2017, whichever, I think it was 2018, and oh, Dracula no. Untold and all that stuff? Oh, no. I I think that the... 
collapse of the dark universe is again i really feel like that was one of the best things that has happened to tentpole filmmaking in like the last decade i think that is just like a really great sign to universal like the mummy failing was a great thing because the mummy is i have not seen it but it's bad yeah that's the thing everyone says it is an objectively terrible film yeah and like i think that universal took one in the chin when this dark universe thing just blew up in their face and what it forced them to do i think is kind of have a little bit of a come to jesus moment on why they're trying to you know be one of the cool kids in the industry and do one of these expanded universes which i think outside of kevin feige's grasp everyone seems to fail at like none of these studios have ever been majorly successful when trying to do these universes and i think that them failing like when sony tried to do this with spider-man and it didn't work and they're still trying to do it to a very weird degree but it's like i like when these studios fail doing things that are dumb because it causes them to reevaluate what's going on then they have a guy like jason blum who's been successful they're like all right you do it and then Blum is a very good genre steward, and then he comes in and is like, all right, we're going to do this a little differently. I'm going to empower this person to take this property that Universal wants to do something with and do something unique and original and bold with it and put it in the theaters at a low-risk time of the year and watch it make a lot of money and be really, really good because it's a very singular voice and a very singular vision. And I just – I think that the dark universe would have been garbage. I think that they got a really weird assembly of talent. They kind of are using people that have been, we have seen what their visions are for these franchise well, films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a classic example of putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. It's just exactly. like, yeah, yeah. It's just like doing everything. Like it's just assuming everything's going to work out. So like trying to do like a 10 year plan Absolutely. without getting to base. Like, I mean, you know, as much as Marvel plans advance, they did, you know, wait until Iron Man was a hit before they even considered a cinematic universe. And so, yeah, everyone just was like, well, if they did it, they, we can do it. And yeah, I agree with everything you said. Will slash uh, Corey, whoever you are at the moment, uh, can I say something controversial? Say something a little bit of a, a little bit of a hot Egypt heat take. Let's do it. OK, so the mummy was not that big of a failure. And here's why. You mean critically or critically? Yes. Okay. So critics didn't love it, but it also wasn't, it wasn't a huge flop and the critical response. I mean, yeah, I would sure it's Rotten Tomatoes was 16%, but at the same time, it made over $400 million. It's budget was probably a lot less than half of that. So it probably about broke even or so. And I say that not to defend this film, but to say it's less that this movie was a huge disaster and more of like the studio. It was a disaster, a disaster for them because it, it, it wasn't a worldwide phenomenon. And right. it's almost like they reset their dark universe, not because they didn't think these movies could make some money, but because they looked at it and said, well, it can't make all the money. So we have to rethink the movies we release and the budgets we give them and completely reset our expectations. And I think that's, that's a hand in hand with what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a DC problem, I guess, where it's like technically like a lot of those films weren't, I mean, with the exception of justice league, like a lot of those films weren't abject failures beforehand as far as their commercial success, but they just weren't, they had so high of bars of expectations that 
it was yeah. doomed to fail from the beginning. It's the business acumen of like if it's not growing exponentially, then it's a mm. failure. But that's in quotes. Like it's not. We we should make it sound like the mummy bombed on opening weekend it made a lot less money than they were hoping that's what it comes down to and and they put a lot of effort into trying to make this a thing i mean christopher mccrory co-wrote the movie and it's tom cruise and like that actually like if you take the context out and you're like oh a, a reboot of the mummy with tom cruise and the guy who's made some of the best mission impossible movies you'd at least be fairly interested in how that turns out it just turns out that people don't want these monster movies to be Marvel movies. Like, isn't it that simple? Whereas The Invisible Man, to refocus here, is, Mm -hmm. I I think uh, you said it, sorry, Corey said it very well. Corey. Uh, it, It is a movie that's made by a genre steward. I love that terminology. The idea that it is straight cut horror. It is a movie built on scenes that are, stripped down to their essentials and what gets people invested in a movie i have some criticisms of the movie and i want to talk about it i do think it's a little bit too long and i agree with that that was something i was gonna say as well i do think this movie at times it seems to revel in the pain of elizabeth moss and that gave me a, a little bit of a a jagged edge in my mouth ultimately i i'm pretty happy with the way the film turned out but there was it, it felt a little bit torturous and, and needlessly so in some ways. And I think that goes to the length as well. Sounds like you agree, Will Ashton. But what about your uh, your friend who's in the, the room with you, Corey Woodruff? Sure, let me try to summon him. I am here. I've been summoned. Your brother. Um, you know, I admire the heck out of this movie. Um, I don't think it's perfect. But, you know, obviously I've always said that's like a lazy qualifier for film. Like, no films are perfect. But... I, it's just, it was one of those movies where I think that in its strongest moments, it is excellent. Like there are sincerely great moments in this film that if the entire film had been those moments, it would be like, like a, like a get out level, great genre film. Um, I think that the connective tissue to it at times is a bit rushed. Um, I think mm-hmm. that they really are working hard to build up to these big character moments, the big uh, shock moments, the big kind of set pieces that we see, kind of minimal, even though it's kind of a smaller focus. Um, I think that they kind of rush between trying to get us to place to place to place, because like you guys say, there's a lot, it wants to do a lot within its two hours, and I think it at times probably feels longer because it's trying to tell a lot of story. Uh, which yeah. is interesting because it is such a small story that's being told in a very long way. Mm-hmm. And I think that at times the it does feel a little rushed. Um, and I do think that I wish the film had consistently been, you know, if you would just like take out a little bit of the dialogue, a little bit of the character building that we think we might need, but we don't really need. It could have been a bit of a tighter film and an even better film, but I think as it is, it is a, it's a really, really good movie. Sure, yeah. You, honest, you Honestly, you get the sense that the screenplay was a little bit more filled out, and I, the, way, the reason I suspect that or theorize that is because the middle section of this film is a bit cohesive, where uh, a big chunk of this film takes place over the course of just one night slash morning. And it is very cohesive and there's not as many plot holes, whereas the rest of the film seems a little bit more edited 
And you do get the sense that the movie was supposed to be a lot longer than it was. And they had to make some strategic cuts for the sake of this film's health at the box office, honestly. As if it was any longer, I think it would have been really frustrating. But at the same time, a longer runtime probably would have cleaned over some of this film's uh, both plot and potholes. I was going to say potholes, but I actually mean both in a sense because they do feel like abrupt and they kind of like interrupt the the entire movie although is it fair to say is plot hole pot hole supposed to be linked is that intent is that a thing or am i making that up um i don't know plot hole pot hole potato potato we need a we need to like write a letter to the editor here sure um yeah i mean i think i you guys echo a lot of what i have to say though i mean that was what i was thinking as well is that there there is a set nagging sense that it does kind of feel more like an outline than a fully fleshed out film, either, like you said, because of editing or from in a directly screenwriting standpoint. But yeah, I mean, I do think what really what really impresses me about the film overall is just how well it balances itself. And I think, like you were saying, John, that like it's not always perfect about getting the tone right. But I do think the fact that the film is able to avoid ever being completely silly or like fully because this concept at, at its core can be a kind of goofy idea. And so the fact the movie does have these serious minds intentions and it pulls it off fairly well and keeps you in suspense and keeps that sense of lingering dread and tension and getting you into that suffocated mindset of the main character is, I really think a feat of um, directing and editing, I'd say. Yeah. I, I really want to shout out by the way, some of the supporting cast here because they do sort of help make the film feel as complete as it is. And I, I really want to shout out Aldous Hodge and all 497 of his muscles because he really makes me feel uh, at home and safe. I like Aldous Hodge a lot. I think that he gave a really good performance with a role that typically doesn't usually get like a really good performance. And I think that's one of the reasons I really like this movie is because it is just the layers of it are all really good. Yeah, like, that's a um, that's how I felt about the sister as well. I don't know the actress's name, but the sister uh, I was disappointed though. I felt like the sister didn't get her due. I think she's barely in it, and from yeah. the character standpoint, or I thought the performance though. That's, that's what the I'm performance saying, is, is that... fine, but the character itself. Uh, so the actress is Harriet Dyer, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean she's just uh, just not really given her time to shine. Even though you know we talked about Storm Reed a few times on the show from Wrinkle in Time. Uh, relive and when they see us and this is easily my favorite performance featuring storm i'd agree with that oh my goodness i absolutely loved her character in this and like the way she's utilized here and her this her friendship with her father in this movie james they they have such a great rapport and it's so infectious that it edges Mm -hmm. out to elizabeth moss's character and that's where the stakes of this movie come in. And that's why I felt they were effective because this sort of like unconventional family unit that's more platonic than anything else, which I appreciated, uh, just feels so lovable and aspirational. And I did not want any invisible people messing with them because I, I did not like that one bit. Sure. But I didn't mean to cut you off, Corey. What were you saying before? Oh, no, I just like I just this movie, I admire that it gets a lot of small things right. And I think that if you look at every great film, it is always because the small things add up into something really, really, really special. Now, do I think this is like a like 
I don't think this is like a elite horror film. Like I think that there are aspects of it that are excellent, but like I think for what it is, like it is just so packed on in terms of all the things that I think it does get right. And I think that a character like Aldous Hodge in this movie, usually it's like they're we're not really thinking about them the entire time, but I was just really captivated with his performance. I think he's a very good actor, but I think in a very general sense, like Storm Reed is really good in this film. Um, Michael Dorman, who plays uh, the uh, abusive spouses and kind of the, uh, his, his brother who kind of brother. Yeah. Tom handles his account. He is fantastic. He has one scene in this movie that is just like so locked in and two scenes. Two scenes. I was like, Ooh, who is this guy? He's very, very, very good. Yeah, um, he's in the he's in the uh, Apple TV show for all mankind. So a few people might recognize him from there. He's in another show that I haven't really seen though, called uh, Patriot. But interesting. It sounds like uh, Will Ashton. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Corey Woodruff. It sounds like those are some of your final thoughts on Invisible Man. So if you want to wrap them up, and what what would be your yep. final grade? It sounds like you were saying earlier you think it's a perfect film. Um, I don't think it's necessarily perfect, but I do think Be that facetious. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty dang good. I mean, I think that it's one of the best things that Blumhouse has done. Um, I think when you really weigh this pound for pound, it's just head and shoulders above, you know, a lot of what studios are doing right now with big, expansive film projects. And the fact that this plays like one of those and it only costs $7 million is just very impressive. We haven't really talked about it a lot, but Elizabeth Moss is superb in this film. Um, it is a electrifying performance for her. It reminds me a lot of what Lupita Nyong'o did last year with us. It may not be so, it may not be as complicated a performance, but I think the level of emotional grounding that it takes to be able to pull that kind of a role off is very similar. Um, she has one scene in this that's kind of like an extended monologue where she's just by herself, and the way that she maneuvers. Um, through that moment and the way that um, Juanel really kind of lets the score guide it, lets the really the camera movement very centered on her and the way he builds that tension in the moment to really just be this gigantic like semi catharsis. It's just amazing. And it's just so exciting to watch this type of stuff in an Invisible Man adaptation. Um, I think that Jason Blum is doing a little bit with stuff like this, with Christopher, uh, with Chris Lord and Phil Miller, or excuse me, Phil Lord and Chris Miller did with stuff like the Lego movie and uh, Spider-Man is the Spider-Verse, which they produced. Um, they did this with uh, 21 Jump Street, where they take these prod- these like uh, established brands and just completely twist them on their head into something fresh and interesting and exciting. So I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, I love the score by Benjamin Walfish. Um, I thought that Stefan Dusico's cinematography was really good. Um, there's just a lot to like, I go a minus on it. You know, it's not quite an a movie to me, but I think that it very much has moments that are up to that level. So I would absolutely recommend it. All right. A minus from Corey Woodruff. And I I have to agree and hearken that the cinematography in this from Stefan Disco is really good. And I, I really appreciate just Lee Whitnell is sort of carving out his director identity, which is very distinct. I think that it's very unique to the way he likes to make films, which features a lot of symmetry. Uh, I was going to say symmetrical, which is not a word or a pronunciation of a word. Symmetrical, symmetry, all of that fun stuff. But 
seriously, like his eye for architecture and uh, it carries over from Upgrade. My favorite. I still remember the production design of that movie and how thrilling it is to enter a world through Lee Winnell's perspective. And you have to give props to a cinematographer. Again, Stefan Disco for that as well. Uh, you mentioned Blumhouse Productions, and uh, I'm curious because like, there's a lot of great Blumhouse films. I definitely wouldn't put this up with the very best. I'd say Get Out continues to be one of like the real true standards. But Blumhouse has their hands in so many films. Can can you guess, Will or Corey, whoever you are, uh, how many how many films do you think Blumhouse Productions had their hand in in 2019? Let's just say 2019 alone. Guess 24. No six. 13. Dang. So one of you was close. I forget which one you're supposed to be. But Two. yeah, 13 films. They include films like Glass, you know, and Ma, which aren't quite as successful. Don't Let Go, which is, I kind of mentioned that one earlier. It's also known as Relive with Storm Reed and David Oyelowo. But also very successful films, uh, at least critically, like Happy Death Day to You. And yeah. actually, that's kind R. of R. it. RIP to, <laughs> to the third one, though. Apparently it's not going to happen, which not yet. Not with that attitude. Well, well, no, I mean like the directors like said that. And I think Jason Blumman says, well, I mean, I I heard about that. I I would not be pessimistic unless there was evidence to be pessimistic. So, right. I I actually, well, you know what, to be honest, I was feeling a little down on Blumhouse as of last year because they didn't really make any films besides happy death to you that I was fully appreciative of. I don't think us is a Blumhouse. Are you monkey, sure? That's I'm pretty sure paw. that's Blumhouse. I'd have it's to double check, but I, I didn't think they really had a hand in that. But uh, I certainly could be corrected for sure. But I'll check. Yeah. I, mean, I might, might be wrong, but I thought they were involved. I, I honestly didn't think they were. I When I look at the Blumhouse films of last year, they include like Black Christmas and that sequel to The Gallows and uh, Bloodline. Just, just films that didn't really take flight and so and then they just came out with fantasy island for with sony and that that certainly was not uh very successful even though it had the same budget it it uh and it wasn't a flop necessarily at least critically <laughs> it wasn't quite the uh the impact that i think they were uh, going for yeah jason blum was the producer on us was that blumhouse productions though uh, like I'm, I'm talking about blumhouse i'm not talking about jason blum because i know that there's a little bit of distinction there right i guess so if you're talking like the whiplash blumhouse distinction but well, well, because because at the same time, Blumhouse does things where Jason Jason Blum tends to be a producer, like Black Klansman, technically, uh, was was in that family of films, right? Yeah, I guess you might be right though, because I'm just seeing Monkey Paw and Perfect World Productions, so and you and Universal. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Whiplash was partly Blumhouse with Sony, but okay. it again, we could be parsing hairs. Uh, my my sure. main takeaway or like my main reason for bringing that up. It's just that more often than not, like these Blumhouse production films tend to be kind of misses. But anyway, getting back into final thought territory, Will Ashton, uh, mm-hmm. what, what about you? Where where do you land ultimately with The Invisible Man? Yeah, I mean, I got to echo a lot of what you guys have said. I think you've both said it very well. Um, I just think it really is impressive what Le Winnell accomplishes here. I don't think he's quite like master territory as far as his filmmaking style, but it's very apparent that he's on the verge of being a really solid director. And I think he keeps the genre elements in mind, but he also is very smart about building his worlds and building a sense of atmosphere and tension and suspense. 
and um, also just he's really good staging some scenes as well, just from a uh, choreography standpoint and also from a cinematography standpoint. And uh, I also got to give a lot of props to the sound design, which I don't think either of you mentioned yet, but I got to see this in Dolby. And I think this, the use of sound in this film is a really big feather in its cap. Really good in IMAX, too, to echo. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that goes a long way for building the um, core premise of the film and really making it excel. So, um, yeah, I think at its core, it's just a really clever, well-executed film. Not perfect. I mean, obviously, this is the type of film where if you want to poke holes in it, you can. And you'll probably find a lot of loose threads. But I think what works here is what we're celebrating. And I think it's on the right track for being the type of uh, genre film based on established IP that I want to see, especially ones that are willing to change perspective in a unique and timely and uh, ultimately very thoughtful and engaging way. And also, as we mentioned before, Elizabeth Moss deserves a great deal of the the praise and uh, accolades here just because her performance, I think, is what makes this work above all else. And I think it's just she's just on a roll. I mean, just looking back on her smell, this... uh, all the other performances Handmaid's that tale, um, mad men and tell us i've yet um, to see yeah. her in something i didn't at least appreciate honestly yeah and i think she's really just i i mean i can't even think of a bad performance from her like even if the films that she's in aren't always great she's really i tend to uh, not does... watch them <laughs> like uh the kitchen i didn't even see it oh yeah yeah that's right no but she was like no i was gonna say with the kitchen like she's the best part of that so i think yeah she's really on the roll to being one of our great premier actresses and i hope this goes a long way towards uh, helping her become a box office marquee name. So yeah, a lot of good things are going on here and I'd give it a solid B. All right. So that's a B for Milashin, an A minus from, uh, yeah, Corey, Corey Woodruff. And for me, yeah, I'm, I'm really in that same kind of vein. And I really hope people check out Shirley, which also stars Elizabeth Moss. Now I haven't had a chance to see it. It premiered Sundance. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't it. think you saw that. Yeah, but I, I've heard such great things from people I trust, so I'm really looking forward to it, and I think that's one that's going to be worth watching, even if it isn't mm-hmm. the uh, the amazing film that um, it's being hyped up as. You never know. I was going to say, I saw a trailer for it before um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and I wasn't like blown away by the trailer, but I'm excited based on the praise I've heard. So sure, sure. Hoping for the best, yeah. I, I definitely want to see it a lot, and uh, I want to see anything with Elizabeth Moss. She has more than solidified yeah. herself as one of our finest actors. So, you know, when I look, though, at Invisible Man as a whole, I, I'm trying to, like, b- just bring it back to basics. Because that's what this film is. It's it's the horror movie, I think, at its, at, at its bare bones in a good way. And I just had a great experience at the theater. You know, like we didn't really talk about this, but like in my theater, I was the only person in the audience except for like one other person. And it was an IMAX screening and it was a huge auditorium and I was kind of by myself. And it was it was fantastic because it was IMAX. It was like one of the real IMAX screens. Like we're talking like the entire like side of California's skyline or is just right in front of me beaming this movie into my brain. And I was absolutely engrossed. And even though I walked away from it being like, you know, some of that didn't make sense necessarily. Some of these things weren't quite, you know, I wasn't fully satisfied by some of the mechanics of the plot and uh, the science involved, I guess. And some of it is pretty predictable. The very end, I kind of telegraphed. And I think maybe you're supposed to 
telegraph it and and to a degree maybe that's giving lee win a little bit too much credit but i do think that he's he knows the audience to step ahead of him the entire time a lot of this movie you're supposed to be a step ahead of her character you know it's called the invisible man and when it gets paranormal activity on you you're just sort of like yeah like we know what's going on here and what i there's like one big shock though to me plot wise Okay, there are a couple of things that, yeah, I, I don't want to make it sound like this film is not surprising. Uh, it is, and it has its surprises and its pleasures, and it is just a good cinema film. Like, if you want to go to the movies and get wrapped up in a really cool story and walk away from it pretty satisfied, Invisible Man is your movie. So I give it a hearty B+. Plus. And I really hope people check it out because I think most people are going to really enjoy it. And uh, I, I do know that there's going to be a spinoff of a film. Yeah, it's going to be like a female counterpart to this one with Elizabeth Banks. You guys looking forward to The Invisible Woman? Yeah, I, I don't know. what is that directly related to this or is that just the spinoff? Um, so it could be oh, okay. that's that's what they're referring to it as. I don't know if they've really made that decision. They're probably waiting for, to see how the reception of this movie goes before okay. they really consider like because because they're just now getting from pre-production into production so they probably have studio notes based on oh really it's that fast right because it's november so it's in pre-production right now and i think they might start shooting this summer probably i would guess wow that's that's a quick turnaround yeah i mean it totally depends so i don't want to say that resolutely uh but it did it does seem like they are sort of moving this thing right along uh but mm. we'll see yeah yeah so solid cinema score for this film, solid uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I think it was like 92% last I saw. It uh, looks like they're they're probably going to move forward with this direction for the Universal Monster films. Just really like looking at like what's scary about these monsters, what's scary about Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, like that stuff, and focus on that and make scary movies based off of these existing properties. And if you, I think this movie proves that if you do a good job at making that movie, people will show up. And that seems to be more than uh, evidence that this movie is going to be successful. I think this one's going to do quite well. And with that, we're going to move into our next review, which uh, I have a surprise for you, Will. Yep. I I might have done. I might have taken the liberty of kind of easing some of these departures into insanity that you've been having. And okay. I, I messaged one of our good friends, Corey Woodruff, and we're skyping him in right now. Okay. All right, there's a Skype dial tone. Sounds good. Uh, Corey, Corey Woodruff, you should be on the line. Hey, Corey, this is Sean Negroni. Oh, hello, Sean Corey. Negroni. How are you? Hey, Corey, thank you so much for responding to my text message. I know you were in the middle yep. of, of a really intense... Do you, call him, do you call him Sean Negroni? I did. I love him. He does all the, <laughs> I love all the cartoon stuff. He's John great. the Sheep. Uh, Corey is not only a special guest on this episode. Uh, sorry you missed our Invisible Man review, Corey, but uh, Corey is also a patron wow. of Cinemaholics as of 10 minutes ago. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cinemaholics. Corey Woodruff is our latest patron. Corey, thank you so much. Corey, because you are a patron, we will now answer any question you have for us. Um, do you know where my car keys are? They're in your pocket. Oh, shoot. Okay. Do you know where I, uh, okay. So I'm seven years old. The year is 1999. I have an Obi-Wan Kenobi action figure with me at the beach. Okay. I stuck that action figure in the sand. The tide comes in and it disappears. Where is it? So turn around seven year old version of Corey. Do you see a little fun house mirror? It's like off the side of the, yeah. Go in there. There's going to be a little kid who looks exactly like you. 
Very good. Switch places. Okay. Yeah. Now what? Live the rest of your life. And from now on. Eat rabbits. Hmm. Um, right now I'm underground and they're just telling me I'm just going to sit here and eat rabbits. That's all I'm going to do. It's, there's nothing else to do. We're just eating rabbits. The next film we're talking about this week is a Shaun the Sheep <laughs> movie, Farmageddon, which I have not seen. But Will Ashen, who has been suspiciously quiet, I don't think he's very happy with me right now. Uh, Will Ashen, <laughs> you did see this, the Shaun the Sheep movie 2. Yes. The latest one. Because yeah. the first one came out, I think, uh, 2015, no? Yeah, it's been a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, these movies take a while, I guess. You they, know, they do, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Corey Woodruff, friend of the show, patron, uh, welcome again, welcome. I can't say it enough. Uh, I think you saw this one as well. I did. I saw it uh, about two weeks ago. Like, All guess. right. This is a stop motion animated science fiction comedy that technically premiered last year, but it's now getting a little bit of a uh, larger distribution here in the States. I think it came out in the UK last October. And mm-hmm. as of Valentine's day, Sean, the sheep finally made it into our hearts. This is the latest one from Ardman animations. And it was directed by Will Becker and Richard Falon. This is their first film actually. And it's a sequel, as I mentioned to Sean, the sheep movie. So uh, Will Ashton, I know Sean, the sheep holds a little special place in your heart. Does it not? I mean, Ardman animation definitely does. I mean, yeah. I, I like Sean the Sheep movie. Um, I didn't love it quite as much as say Wallace and Gromit, Were Rabbit, okay. Curse of Were Rabbit, or um, let's see, Chicken Run, or any number early of their man. really solid films. Not Early Man so much. I mean, Early Man was like a lower tier one for them, but Agreed. I still think they're. But I still think they're lower tier stuff, with the exception of maybe Flushed Away, because that was like their CG effort, which wasn't great. Um, I, I tend to think more often than not, their movies are really worth watching just from a visual perspective at the very least. And I often think the emotion and humor and sincerity that they put into all their films is really just some of them makes some of the most enjoyable family films out there. And, uh, I, I would say the same for Shaun the Sheep movie Farmageddon, um, which I think is more or less on par with the first film for me, where it's. Another mostly silent film centered around its spinoff of the um, character from the Wallace and Gromit shorts. And uh, I, it, it, these movies are really good about taking what would seem like fairly flimsy premises and just really drawing them out with a lot of like inspired visual gags and a lot of great characters and just a lot of different background sight gags and a lot of just old fashioned inspired uh, comedy bits that I mean, every time I mean, I've only seen the Shaun the Sheep movie twice now, but I, I mean, just every time I watch an Armin film, I just feel like they're a bomb on the soul and are bomb to the soul. And they just fill me up with so much worth and happiness. And they remind me that I think at their heart, some motion movies are some of the purest forms of filmmaking. And I think that's about the same for this film as well. So, I mean, I don't think this is their masterpiece or any respect. I think it's a solid like B level film for them, but I would say it's another one that's well worth watching on Netflix. All right. And it sounds to me like Corey Woodruff, you disagree a hundred percent. Yeah. I think he's full of crap, honestly, which is no surprise. (laughs) As you know, Um, a charlatan film reviewer, Will Ashton Mm. is um, just Mm. an insult to the, if I had a a quarter for every time I heard that. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. You'd have 50 cents just today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just an, an insult. Just since to we started recording and just looking mm-hmm. at his text messages from me. Yeah. <laughs> 
but yeah, I um I love the 2015 film. Uh, where me and Will, I think, would differ on this is that I really think that's one of Ardman's best movies. Um, I think it is just ingeniously clever and just relentlessly heartfelt and just genuinely moving and really, 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 really funny at times. And I held that. That was in my top 10 that year. Like, I adore that movie. I watched it again recently before this came out, and I thought it was just as funny as the first time I saw it. And if not more moving, like, I I adore the, the, the first movie. The second one I was very excited about, but obviously it's a little disappointing when um, – Things moved to Netflix these days, particularly after it had a release in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Will said this in his letterbox, but like I also would have loved to have seen this in the theater, especially like having that opening credit thing. I mean, I feel like this is the perfect crowd to say, like, I love distribution logos for stuff yeah. like this. Like, I think that there's special moments and it's like, imagine like not getting to see the hopping lamp for Pixar or like. Like you have to watch it on a TV for the first time, which would be very deflating because I love watching Pixar movies in theaters. And I love that feeling with any animation. And it was kind of a bummer. This was on just Netflix purely here in yeah. the States. But I'd rather have that than not see it at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, I thought this was a really fun movie. I think it's very much a step down from the first film. I think it's a bit more of a gimmick, I guess, and a bit more of an episodic thing. Um, this felt like a very long version of the TV show, like kind of like a 30 minute episode stretched out over 90 minutes, as opposed to like the first film, which I think was actually a very cinematic, good, well-told story um, that actually had an arc and character development. And this one was a bit more like that alien is here. What are you going to do? But it's still really good. Like I still had a lot of fun with it. And I think that um, they just, Ardman's, this was a, this was a, uh, it was just a more concept heavy movie. I don't think it's quite as funny as the first film. I think the emotion is definitely there and I think it absolutely gets better as it goes on. But you know, I think that for a movie where Sean, the sheep is running around with an alien and then uh Blitzer, the dog gets caught up with everything and you see him being frustrated every five minutes and the farmer is doing it. It's like, it's just, it's very familiar and it's a fun world to be in. Like, I think that's the, it's like, it's, it's comfort food. Like, and this is a very much a comfort food entry to Ardman's stuff. But like, I didn't think Early Man was the best movie in the world, but I also like would rather have 50 Early Mans than like one uninspired DreamWorks movie. Like, value stop motion a lot. Like, I think it is a, a definitive medium for what we have in film and I'm, I, I, I'm sad that we are beginning to lose it a little bit like it's just not quite a priority anymore outside of this and Leica so you know I I like I like this movie a lot it's not the best movie in the world in terms of kind of what's come before it like I think it's a little bit of a step down but I still have a lot of fun with it and, and it's one of the better things I've seen this year of the of the couple things that I've seen sure I mean the only thing I'd push back on is that I felt like this one was actually a little bit more cinematic than the first one. Interesting. Just, just right. in terms of its visual approach, um, I forget the name uh-huh. of the two directors, but I mean, obviously, because they're inspired by films like Close Encounters and different alien mm-hmm. invasion films and that, like, it felt like they had a little bit more of a playful visual style than the first movie, which I appreciate because it's, you know, it's about like simple farm characters being like fish out of water in the city. The style of that is meant to be very simplistic and like, you know, just central to the characters. But um, it just made me a little like you were saying, I, I think it makes me more disappointed that this wasn't premiering in theater. And as opposed to something like the last thing he wanted, which apparently was in theaters, and I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, Talk I about mean, that more next week. By the way, listeners. sure, right? Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, echoing a lot of what you said. I mean, these movies—they're just—I mean, beyond the technical merits, which I think 
this is easily some of the best uh, blends of stop motion and CG that they've done ever, I think. I mean, I know they've been pushing for more CG heavy stuff in recent years, which is understandable because, you know, it's just the way of the tides. But um, I, I think this is some of the best animation we've gotten from them. And I agree that the storytelling doesn't always match that. But um, I don't know. I, I guess I was more taken by the story than you were altogether. But I will say I agree that like where the first film was able to incorporate, like, say, the farmer character and uh, Blitzer in a way that felt a little bit more organic. This felt like they kind of were shoehorned into Sean's whole subplot and the same with his other sheep friends. Uh, it just felt like they kind of had to figure out different ways to incorporate them into this larger narrative that was ultimately, by and large, a little bit kind of generic as far as your, like, kid becomes friends with an alien stories that we mm. get. But no, I mean, I, I think it's definitely worth watching. And I will say, I do think Netflix seems to be, in addition to the studios you mentioned, I think they are pushing for more stop motion films because I know they are behind um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio movie. And I think they're involved with a few other stop motion movies that I'm blanking on right now. So well, even they're supporters of hand-drawn animation, too, with films like Klaus. Right. So, yeah, I mean, even though they're not really giving these films their full theatrical due, at least they're footing the bill or premiering them on their site, which is not nothing. The uh, yeah. the directors are Will Becker and Richard Fallon. And yeah. Uh, yeah and I, I want to guess your grades. I've been listening. Sure. I'm taking copious notes in my head. And I'm sure. going to try to guess Will and Corey's grade. So, Will, I think you're going to give it a B. And I think Corey is going to give it a B plus. Am I right? Wow. Yeah, that was I was going B plus B. It was like right in that range. Yeah, I was between a B and a B minus. But I was going to give it a B. I just want to take this moment. I could brag. I sure. could make a big fuss. You need. But I just want to I want the listeners to understand that I care about my co-hosts and I listen to them. And when they have problems, sure. they come to me. Sure. And mm-hmm. I listen and I don't. I don't just like leave him by the wayside. So Sean, the sheep movie two, Farmageddon final thoughts. Oh, I mean, do you have any more Corey? I think that kind of sums up my final thoughts. Uh, yeah. I just, you know, like I, it's just like, it's just like the annual, like, you know, telethon call to action. Like, just please keep making these movies. Like I, we, I know we've got chicken run two coming out probably. In yeah. Next. Keep forgetting about that. Yeah. My guess is probably like next year, year after that sometime in 2020, 21, but yeah, you know, I just I don't want to lose them. I mean, I'm excited for the Henry Selleck movie that's coming out, Wendell and Wild on Netflix pretty soon. Mm-hmm. That's the other one. Yeah. And, uh, Del Toro's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Del Toro's video, I'm very hyped for. Um, like, there's still some stop motion, like us, probably developing something. Like, it's still going. Like, there's maybe, like, one a year, maybe one every two years that we still get. And it's, like, really cool to get them. So I don't want to lose stop motion. It would be a loss. And I feel like that as long as... There are those that appreciate the medium. Um, and I think Ardman is always going to be the flagship for these type of productions. Like I respect the heck out of Leica, but it's like Ardman's they're the they're the they're the old kid on the block. Like they're the ones that have been here for a while. So I just continue to want to see these movies because I just that the day we lose stop motion, it's gonna be tough. Yeah, for sure. And I guess the only thing I'd add is just that I mean at least Wes Anderson's keeping them going yeah. every now and then. So at least Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess we can fall back on him at least for more more of these films. All right, that is a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, a film that I have not seen. But if I did see it, I'd probably be between about a B and a B plus, sounds like. Did you see the first Shaun the Sheep? I didn't, no. Okay. Oh, man, you need to watch them. I, I have to say, I've seen a lot of Wallace and Gromit. I saw Early Man, and it's not my favorite animation. And I, But I do my best to stay, stay up to it. You bite your tongue. I bite it so hard the blood is gushing from my mouth. And speaking of... Sure. 
unpleasant images. Let's talk about a movie called Wendy. Wendy okay. is the newest film from director Ben Zeitlin, who co-wrote the film with Eliza Zeitlin, who I do not know the specific relation, to be totally honest with you. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen this film. Uh, Corey, will neither of you have seen it? No, it's not here yet. Yeah. I will I will make this brief. Uh, this premiered at the Sundance Film Festival last month. That's when I saw it. It had a limited release from Searchlights uh, this past week. And for those of you who don't know, we we also we also talked about it in our winter movie preview. It was a film that I was really looking forward to. It was one of my highest anticipated. And a big reason is because Ben Zeitlin directed Beasts of the Southern Wild. And I love the premise of this. I think that director is great at directing young children. Uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, I think, is a very thrilling movie. It gets a little bit of backlash these days, but I still think it's very effective. Oh, and I love that movie. This movie, Wendy, is sort of a reimagining of the Peter Pan, the classic Peter Pan story originally by J.M. Barr. And it follows Wendy Darling, not as a British debutante in the early 19th or 20th century, but instead it follows a young girl in the modern day in sort of the heartland of America. She lives in a diner in a diner with her mother and her twin younger brothers, and they live a bit of a humble existence, but they're, they're sort of a, a call of the wild, as we might mention in some terms later in this episode, where she, she feels a little bit like life is right outside the door of her waitressing job at the ripe age of seven or eight years old. And as it happens, a, a young a young boy named Peter one day shows up on these trains that come by, played by Joshua Mack. And Peter entices Wendy, who's played by Devin France, and her young twin brothers Douglas and James, played by Gage and Gavin Naquin, to come along with Peter to Neverland. The Neverland that we, have co- of course, know from the classic stories, which in this case is both very different from the Neverland you know, but in some thematic ways, very similar. And I have to say, when this film first introduces these young children to Neverland and they go on this thrilling journey to explore the island and live life at their full throat, this movie shines. I mean, it's it's spectacular. It's dazzling. I mean, you're just entranced with these kids. And it was at that point in the movie where I was like, I'm really spellbound by this. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really getting something out of this reckless adventure by these kids to the point where I was getting the feeling that I had during where the wild things are of this impending destruction that could be coming about at any moment. And because both films are sort of framed very similarly in terms of like the only thing that will break the monotony of suburban youth is the adventures that we get from our movies and TV shows and and stories and everything. And when that film was on that level, was really working. And then rules enter. And the film takes a turn toward the unremarkable that robs it of everything that I was so enamored with concerning the premise and the world building and these young characters. And we go from a movie where these kids are just shining to a movie where these kids are slogging just through the most lackluster plot, I wanted to walk out because the more I felt like I was watching this film, the the less I was feeling impacted by what was so good about the opening 20, 30 minutes. Wendy is a 
not great film. And what partly makes it not great is how great it could have been. And I'm a little heartbroken by this movie. So much of it was exactly what I was looking for at the movies. And I'm just sad to say that. And I know some people, it's working for them all right. Right now has a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's not being critically panned all the way. But I don't know. I, I don't know, Will or Corey, how you would react to the film. It's low budget, $6 million. Honestly, like it's the kind of film that you'd be like, $6 million? Uh, this looks like a 2 to $3 million film, honestly. Okay, I was going to say same budget as Invisible Man, basically. Almost. Uh, the box office, not quite as similar. $30,000, which is absolutely just not great um, so far. So not, not a film that I think Searchlight has a lot of hope for. Corey Woodruff, friend of the show, fellow enchanter of youth culture. Uh, are you going to be checking out Wendy, or have you heard anything about this movie? Where are you at with this one? Well... Beats of the Southern Wild is literally one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. So I have been waiting for Ben Zeitlin to come back for a very long time. Wendy has been in development for like half a decade. Yeah. Like they have been talking about this movie for a very, 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 very long time. Um, I guess it's not a great sign, I think, for just the film's general visibility that it's kind of being dumped. Um, It seems like Searchlight is just trying to kind of burn it off the books in a way. Yeah, I should. I forgot to mention this. They announced the film in 2015. They shot it in 2017, and it's been on the shelf for three years. Yo, yeah, which is not great. Um, I think Ben Zeitlin is a hyper talented director. Um, one of the things that really endears me from a lot of the criticisms I see of the film is like, well, it's not poorly directed. It's just that all the issues stem from the script, maybe stem from some performances that it seems still like it's evident that he's a very talented person who seems to have just kind of swung and missed with this and maybe but i read people that some really like it and some people really are kind of like you said enchanted by what's going on so i'm very hopeful i'll see it probably a week from tomorrow i think um I've got that's when the nashville press screening is so i'm i'm hope, definitely hopeful for it i i really don't want to not like it it's kind of one of those movies that i've been really excited about for a long time so it's like my fingers are crossed tight but obviously um my film taste if i had to find two people that probably share my opinion on film like 80 percent of the time it's you too so if one of you doesn't like it it doesn't leave me quite as hopeful but i'm still crossing my fingers i hope you still see it for yourself and i hope you prove me wrong and say something in it that i didn't uh, i give the film a c a c for captain hook mm-hmm. oh i hate hook so much I could do like an eight-hour podcast on how much you're I a crook, Captain Hook. I'm gonna throw the book at that movie. That you were gonna Steven say Stick. something, Will, before Corey said something stupid about Hook. <laughs> oh, uh, I was I was Which quoting a uh, rest. Of, um, I was quoting uh, rest development. Oh, uh, so but um, no, I was gonna say. I mean, I know we we haven't mentioned on this episode, but we talked a lot about your Peter Pan bias, where you tend to have uh, negative to outright. Uh, I would say mean thoughts on the the property. So I, the only I'll Peter Pan movie I like, or the only thing with Peter Pan in it that I like, is the animated movie and the Disney movie or the Hook movie. That's it. Yeah, oh. I, like, I mean Hook is flawed, but I at least admire it for a lot of different I things. I like it a lot. Um, it's effective. I thought the 2003 one was fine. I thought you know I enjoyed it when I saw it at the time. I haven't thought about it much except when people bring up Peter Pan movies. Even as but... you talk about it, I just want to boo you. But I know that would sound really bad. Like boo you know, like no, I'm not gonna do it. Sure. But boo. I mean and well Pan 
Um, <laughs> what a movie made for like variety headlines. Pan at least looks pretty. <laughs> Does it? Uh, it looks. There's some scenes in Pan that look really nice. Uh, maybe um, maybe the part where the ship is like abducting the children. But even then, I, I feel weird I saying mean, that. There's like a couple of forest scenes I remember looking really nice. I mean, I don't know. I also think Pan's one of those movies that gets criticized mainly for one scene, like in the scheme of things. Well, two scenes. But I, I feel like most of the, the criticisms derive from two different scenes. So I don't think it's quite as bad as people make it out to be. But I don't know. I mean, it's not a film I've really held in any high regard or any regard since I've seen it. So um, I guess that will probably carry over yeah to we're not Wendy. doing the eight hour podcast of peter pen yet but that is a good concept um but all right let's let's finish never never ending podcast <laughs> oh no you're you're already workshopping titles which sounds like it's totally going to be a thing now so yeah. i guess uh, i guess that's the case but let's finish this episode out with one last review the call of the wild which is based on the jack london novel from 1903 it's been out for for quite a while so if if you don't want to get spoiled on this 117-year-old novel, then you may want to listen elsewhere. Uh, but this mm-hmm. is the newest film from, uh, I think, one of the first films from 20th Century Pictures, the newly titled. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a film that came out for The Call of the Wild that came out in 1935, which I've seen. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Uh, this new one not. is directed by Chris Sanders, his directorial debut for live action. Uh, it's written by Michael Green. And it stars Harrison Ford, Dan Stevens, Omar Sy, Karen Gillan, Bradley Whitford, and Colin Woodell. Great cast, uh, set in the 1890s during the Gold Rush. Uh, some of you listening might already be familiar with the story, but for those who aren't, Corey Woodruff, uh, you saw Call the the, uh, the Call of the Wild, correct? I did not. I oh, my I grandmother did. canceled okay. our screening. Uh, never mind. For some reason, I thought you had seen it, so I'm going to turn it over. Yeah. It's Will William Tyler Ashton. Mm. Um, one of my good friends. Vokey my middle name yet again. Will, who I appreciate, who I look up to, who whenever I'm in a crisis, I send him a text message and say, Will, what do I do? And Will is there with me through all the storms, through all the blizzards. And when I say mush, he speeds me through. Oh, sorry. That's a wrong movie, I guess. That's Togo. Because Call of the Wild doesn't have dog sledding. Will Ashton is my loyal friend. Will Ashton, what did you think of Call of the Wild and what is it about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you pretty much, I mean, knowing the story of it is basically as far as you need to know about the plot, which is that, you know, it's set in the 19th century. It's centered around the dog named Buck who goes on this cross-country adventure, uh, eventually befriends uh, Harrison Ford's character, who is this grieving uh uh, basically, hermit who's uh, living on the outskirts of town and is uh, just inclined to drink his sorrows away. And through the dog, he finds some uh, sense of longing and love again. And they go on a search for gold. And it's, uh, I mean, I don't know how it compares to other adaptations and how it compares to the book because I'm not very familiar with any of those or the text. But um, as a film itself, it's admittedly, especially at the beginning, kind of weird. For reasons that we didn't dive into yet, which is that for reasons that I'm only somewhat clear on, they decided to make the main central dog entirely CG. Um, I believe it's something with like like a PETA, like animal rights thing where they wanted to make sure the dog wasn't in any risk of danger. 
Sure. And, uh, you know, obviously because the film's so much, uh, so central to him and uh, focus on his expressions and his uh, inner life, I guess they just figured. Yeah. Can I give my theory on that then? Because sure. we mentioned Chris Sanders. He was the director of How to Train Your Dragon. I get yeah. the sense that that's kind of why. Because of his animation background? Yeah, just a little bit. Which I guess, I mean, if that's the, the reason why he decided to take the property, which I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that like movies like Lilo and Stitch and How to Train Your Dragon are basically dog movies just with animals that aren't dogs. Well, I guess in case of Lilo and Stitch is an alien and then. Yeah, Stitch Stitch is more human than anyone I've ever met in my life. Sure. Fair enough. Um, one for hyperbole, but I, I don't dissuade what you're saying and uh, to. Hold on. I'm wiping, I, I'm wiping a tear from my eye. Sure. It's just even. Um, yeah. What else? What was what the other? Didn't he do the crudes too? Chris Sanders? Um, I'd have yeah. to double check that. Um, but I know that he, uh, it, he's, he's done stuff for DreamWorks, right? Other stuff for DreamWorks. Well, I thought, yeah, I thought he, cause they, him and, uh, Dean, um, I forget his last name, but he, the other director wound to make the sequels. Had You're talking about Dean DeBlois, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think he wound to continue the how to train your dragon movies. And then Chris Sanders yeah, yeah, did the yeah. crudes. And then this film, if I'm I think you're not right. mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So in any case, um, there's really no way of getting around just how awkward it is in the beginning <laughs> to see the CG jog pretending to be real because you don't fully buy the illusion at first. And I don't mean that to take away from the animators or the performance, which is from um, the guy that did um, what's his name from uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the villainous character. Koba, Koba, Yeah, Koba. Yeah. Um, Cookie and he Rocket? Also was in, no, not before Cookie Rocket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Though I, um, but, but why um, Cookie Rocket? Yeah, I don't know. It's a question I ask myself every day. <laughs> every every um, day when you wake Cookie up. Rockets. Better question. What was that, Corey? Why not Cookie Rocket? That's, that's a, I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that kind of goes to the, the core of the explanation that, um, <laughs> the movie gives, but, um, <laughs> Because but, the script uh, demanded Cookie Rocket. Yeah. How come all these debates, they don't bring that up? Like <laughs> Bernie Sanders, why Cookie Rocket? Sanders, Sanders. <laughs> I ask you, why Cookie Rocket? <laughs> well, why is Pete Buttigieg America dropping out of the race? Cookie Rocket. Well, Cookie Rocket <laughs> did not. But sorry, you were talking about the uh, the new Disney Fox yeah. Searchlight or 20th Century Films, The Call of the Wild. <laughs> you were talking about it, yeah, at some point. Perhaps. It came out on February twenty first, twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah I mean, seventy nine so, million dollars worldwide received mixed reviews. You're talking right. about it. Yeah, eventually I was talking about that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there's no really getting around how awkward the central character is at first, but um, once you get used to the illusion of it, because I do think the movie does. Like, I think it's to credit to Chris Sanders that the like world building and the just the general good hearted tone of the film really works better than I was anticipating. And just a sense of like giving this story that's been told a million times before a sense of fresh urgency and a really just keen eye for different like action intensive scenes that I thought really worked well and more than I was anticipating. But um, I think what really ultimately won me over to the film was when Harrison Ford came in and he doesn't really come in until about I want to say at least 30 minutes into the film. That's I mean, he's surprising. like, wow, well, actually, it's not true because he, he comes up before that briefly and he's like the narrator, but he really doesn't play a part in the film until about the 30 minute mark. But, um, you know, I mean, 
as much as a curmudgeon as he can be in real life and uh much he can be like you know a, a a stickler for not really playing to Disney's rules with like Star Wars or anything that uh, pertains to um you know I I'm, I guess he, he he does kind of play ball with Indiana Jones but I I know that he has his reputation precedes him for many different things um but I I do think when he puts his heart into a performance he he really does have this movie star charisma that I, I think is kind of going away in some respects. And um, I do think with this performance, you know, it, it, it him interacting with the CG dog and knowing that it's kind of make or break. Like if you don't buy his illusion, this whole film crumbles apart, but he does give a soulful, it's sort of even wistful uh, bittersweet performance that um, took me aback and I wasn't anticipating it to be as emotionally resonant as it was. And I think it was because of that that the movie surprisingly won me over. And also because, as you mentioned, Dan Stevens is in the film and he gives like an old school, like maniacal evil performance, like the type of mustache twirling performance where I thought like at any minute it was going to have like him tying the dog to like a railway and like Harrison Ford had to like save Bob or something like that's like how comically evil he can get at times uh and uh I, I think it's just this weird willingness of everyone to fully buy into this concept and play ball with the cg dog and uh it just play up to the movie's sincere sincere uh appreciation for this text and for this classic story that um i can't say it's a great film and it's not really one i've thought about much and i don't think i have too many other nice things to say about it but as it was, I, I thought it was fine. You know, I mean, I guess maybe it was just because my expectations were low, but I, I would say more than not, I thought it was a decent film. And for that, I'll give it a low B minus. It's a B minus for The Call of the Wild. And, well, I, I have to say, I don't really care about this movie at all. And I don't sure. really want to talk about it. Like, I have nothing interesting. So here's what I want to do instead. Because unfortunately, Corey Woodruff did not come into this episode until late in yeah. The episode, he totally messed our Invisible Man review. But what we could do is we, we could end this episode. We could end this episode with a little bit of fun, a little bit of a game. Let's do that. Let's talk about Harrison Ford. Sure. So let's do, do a little, about? little bit of a little bit of a trivia round between Will Ashton okay. and Corey Woodruff. Corey, you're should I there. try to bring up my Harrison Ford impression? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me see if I can get it. Generally I, speaking, sometimes yeah. I can do it, and sometimes I can't. Okay. Um. Let me. I might have to listen a little bit of Harrison Ford. So keep talking. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask a question. And if one of you sure. wants to answer the question, you have to do the buzzer, you know, make the buzz sound. Okay. Makes sense. Everyone got it. Okay. Here's a question. Harrison Ford, what American city was he born in? Corey? Los Angeles. No. <laughs> Will Ashen. Uh, Nebraska. Not even close. Chicago, Illinois. You guys are not good at this. All Actually, right. makes, that makes sense. Yeah, Harrison Ford. He's from Chicago. All right. Here's an easier question. How old is Harrison Ford? Will Ashton. 65. Nope. Corey Woodruff. Like 70, 78? Corey Woodruff is closest. He is 77. He turns yeah. 78 in July. Oh, wow. Well done, Corey Woodruff. All right. So uh, far, Corey you. has one. Will Ashton has negative one. All right. Sure. What popular 90s TV show actress is Harrison Ford married to? Oh, what's her name? Callista Flockhart? Yeah, that's it. Uh, Corey Woodruff gets it. Allie McBeal, 
herself, who, of course, popularized relationship with Robert Downey Jr.'s character in that show. So a little bit of a Disney Marvel connection. Okay, here we go. Last question. This is for all the Marvels, but really Corey won because uh, Will can't catch up. But who knows? How many children does Harrison Ford have? Will Ash. Three. Corey Winter. Two. Will Ashen was the closest. Harrison Ford has five children, and I know uh, he's had he's been married three times, and yeah. his child with Calissa Flockhart technically is adopted. They adopted their child uh, early on in their relationship, and that was Harrison Ford trivia. I hope the listeners got a lot out of that. There's a lot of fun little Harrison Ford facts. Ford facts. Yeah, I didn't. Like I didn't get to do my Harrison Ford impression yet. I'm trying to. I'm still trying to get. You should have answered right. one of the questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, hey, Harrison yeah. Ford is on the podcast. Everyone, Harrison has come on. Uh, surprise, surprise! We skyped him in. Hi, John. <laughs> you sound I'm like Dennis Quaid, in, Harrison Ford. Yeah, I, that's why I always get, I fall back in the Quaid. <laughs> But it's, I'm like, it's a uh, slippery slope. <laughs> I, let's see. Yeah, uh, I really to, loved you in keep... Merry Happy Whatever, the new Netflix show uh, about Christmas. Well, thank you. <laughs> Is it true? I... All of it? The Force? It's true. All of it. Chewy. Is that. <laughs> <laughs> are you trying to do things to treat um is this by the way harrison ford is this how the force works <laughs> i'm not getting that i'll, I'll, I'll you sound I'll like harrison ford's it. asleep yeah that's that's what i try to go for is is harrison ford in deep slumber just tired is uh what's what's it uh carbon frozen what that's the sounds right. he'd Crypt- make uh, while carbonate. he's uh car- yeah 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 nerd all right, that'll do it for this week's episode of Cinemaholics. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, for, as always, for listening. We'll see you next week to talk about a bunch of new films that include Pixar's Onward, which if you can't wait to hear what I think of that film, my review of Onward is actually live right now on theyoungfolks.com. Check it out. Uh, we'll also talk about Emma, which Will Ashen, you've already seen, and I can't wait yep. to see it as well so we can both talk about it. Uh, we'll also be talking about the latest film from uh, Ben Affleck. The Way Back. Uh, hopefully we're going to be able to see that in time as Actor, well. Actor, not direct. Actor, director, cinematographer, well, but he cartographer, accountant, yeah. all of the uh, Batman. Um, there's also First Cow, uh, which hits wide release. And Spencer Confidential is coming to Netflix, which that we are, we are at least going to be talking about the cast of that movie next week. And then finally, The Banker, which was supposed to come out a few months ago on Apple TV+. Plus is kind of getting a delayed release. Maybe we'll get into some of that context on next week's episode as well. I was going to say, with First Cow, do you think they're getting a little um, ahead of themselves? Like Doug's first movie, like assuming there's going to be a second cow and a third cow. <laughs> That's how I felt about First Reformed, yeah. <laughs> they're like, you know, just assuming it's going to this going to create a full franchise. Right, yeah, where First Cow and Ryan Gosling cow. get together and yeah. save his marriage with Claire Foy. Yeah. The first cow is just there with first, Ryan Gosling. First like, man v first cow. <laughs> Dawn of Justice. <laughs> yeah, Dawn of Justice. Lot of Justice. Uh, there you go. Corey, thank you as uh, for coming on uh, late in the game. Uh, where can people find your work on the internet these days? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Corey Woodruff 47 And you can find my movie. 
Maybe stuff mainly with the Nashville scene um, here in town and then occasionally on the playlist. You have to follow the first 46 Corey Woodruffs to keep up with your account. (laughs) Maybe if you really want to get like deep into it, but you know, you don't have to show me you care. That's fine. Is the 47 a reference to your love of the video game Hitman? Sure. Actually, I fell in love with that number when I was a young boy and I don't exactly remember why. I would be surprised. I would be surprised it had something to do with Hitman, the video game. Considering it's Agent Forty Seven, I don't know. Well, I also thought it was like a sports, like like one of your favorite players was Forty Seven. Or I don't remember. I think I saw a T-shirt one time that had the number Forty Seven on it, and I was like, eh, I'll use that. One. Wasn't even a jersey. It was just no. It was like it was just like one of those things that had like sports written on it, and then like Forty Seven. Oh. Well, maybe you like wanted some ambiguity after Forty Two. Maybe so. Oh yeah, you watched Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and you were like. Mm-hmm too mainstream honestly so mm-hmm. pick up a few notches <laughs> all right we'll see you guys next week from the internet california i'm john agroni from the internet pennsylvania i'm Washington. and from the internet in nashville tennessee i'm Corey woodruff see you next time <laughs>